Hello and welcome back to 365 Days with MXM Tune. I'm Maya, a singer, songwriter, video maker, Oakland native, and a fan of investigative journalism. I'm also a huge fan of history. I love untold stories, gross facts, hidden secrets, and anything weird, dark, and funky from the past. Each day, I'm going to share one of my favorite deep cuts with you, so let's take a look at today's story. It's 365 with MXM Tune. New facts every day, so don't leave too soon. I'm gonna teach you stuff, no, it won't be tough. Gonna go a year till you've had enough. It's 365. On this day in 1974, the impeachment trials of President Richard Nixon began. After serving as president since 1969, he became the first and only president to ever resign from office after being implicated in the Watergate scandal. Let's take a look back on how this went down. In the advance of the 1972 presidential election, the United States was a divided nation. Sound familiar? As the Vietnam War heated up, it became a key point of contention among voters. But Nixon was popular with the people, and he ended up winning re-election in the biggest landslide in the history of U.S. presidential elections. Still, Nixon was paranoid about losing power, especially after the Pentagon Papers were leaked under his leadership in 1971. These documents revealed that the U.S. was more responsible for the war in Vietnam than the people had been led on to believe. So, in an attempt to retain Republican power, the incumbent president and his team went to lengths that no candidate had gone to before. In June 1972, five people broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate Complex. They stole top-secret documents and wired the office phones, allowing them to spy on the Democrats' conversations. The five burglars at the scene were arrested and pled guilty just two weeks before Nixon's second inauguration. At the time, the break-in wasn't as big of a story as you'd think it'd be, but two Washington Post journalists, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, thought that it was suspicious. They were tipped off by an anonymous informant who turned out to be the associate director of the FBI, Mark Felt, that one of the burglars had connections to the CIA. This led the journalists down a long paper trail, connecting the dots until they discovered that the Watergate break-in was planned by Nixon's re-election team. This team was called the Committee to Re-elect the President, otherwise known as the CRP, but they didn't really do a great job with that choice of name because now most people refer to them as creep. The break-in itself was never tied back to Nixon, but what got him in trouble was that he knew that his team orchestrated the break-in for years and went to extraordinary lengths to cover it up. In July 1973, a year after the break-in, Nixon's former assistant, Alexander Butterfield, confessed that all of Nixon's White House conversations were recorded. This was a practice Nixon had adopted from his predecessor, Lyndon B. Johnson, but he didn't think the tapes would, or could, be used against him. Around this time, several officials in Nixon's camp were convicted of illegal campaign activities and lying under oath. Even Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned after he was investigated for extortion, bribery, and income tax violations that he allegedly committed as governor of Virginia. Meanwhile, Nixon remained under fire as it appeared more and more possible that he was involved in the Watergate break-in. The entire country wanted to know what he was hiding on those tapes of White House recordings. He refused to hand over the tapes, only fueling more suspicion that the president had a secret. He cited executive privilege to avoid sharing them. 
Nixon's impeachment trial began on May 9, 1974, but it wasn't until July 24th that the Supreme Court ruled that he needed to share the tapes. Since he was being investigated for crime, his executive privilege didn't apply. One of the tapes contains evidence that days after the break-in, Nixon tried to block investigations and cover up his campaign's involvement in the crime. People call this tape the smoking gun, a phrase that originated from a Sherlock Holmes story. It means that the evidence is strong enough to close the case. When it became clear that the House and the Senate would vote to impeach him, President Nixon resigned on August 9, 1974. In total, 69 government officials were charged for crimes related to the scandal, and 48 of them were found guilty. When Vice President Ford took office after Nixon's resignation, he pardoned the former president. Since Ford was appointed vice president after Agnew's resignation, he became the first and only president who took office without being elected. Presidents can issue pardons for federal offenses, but not state or local ones. These pardons do have some limitations, though. They don't apply to cases of impeachment. So, for example, if a senator were to be impeached, the president could not reverse the decision. But it's unclear whether or not presidents can constitutionally pardon themselves from impeachment. When Nixon's lawyer suggested this as an option, the Department of Justice issued a brief memo against this, but the authority of that memo hasn't been tested in court. The Watergate scandal showcased the importance of investigative journalism. Woodward and Bernstein, the two Post reporters who helped crack the case, published the book All the President's Men, which chronicles their findings. The story was turned into a movie with the same title in 1976. Politically, the scandal weakened Americans' trust in government officials, and it's understandable why. Congress passed legislation in the aftermath that reinforced checks and balances and amended the Freedom of Information Act to make the government more transparent. Still, the impact of the scandal lingers on today. Now let's talk about music. Today, in 1970, the Canadian band The Guess Who hit number one in America with their song American Woman. The song was improvised on stage after guitarist Randy Bachman broke a string. While he replaced it, the band broke out into a jam session, and singer Burton Cummings wrote lyrics on the spot. He claims that the song was about preferring Canadian women to American women, but fans interpret it to be a protest song about the Vietnam War. Once they recorded and released the song, it became such a big hit that the president's wife, Pat Nixon, invited the band to perform at the White House. However, she requested that they not perform American Woman. In 1999, Lenny Kravitz covered the song, which earned him a Grammy for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance. And now for our final segment of the day, I'm going to be going back into my own photo archives to see what I was up to on a May 9th in my life. On May 9th, 2018, at 5.45 p.m., I announced that I was doing my first actual live show. This wasn't my headline show. This was the, I was an opener for two other producers that were playing a show in LA at the time. And I announced that I was playing and I was very nervous because I had never played a show before with my own music in front of people that would buy tickets to potentially come and see me. Uh, it was a very exciting thing for me and my family and I drove down. I remember being like nauseous the entire time and my appetite wasn't even there because I was so nervous about the entire thing, but it ended up going really well. I did forget a bunch of my lyrics on stage. I forget my lyrics all the time. It's kind of normal now at this point and I don't beat myself up over it because I'm just kind of like, whatever, I'm human. It's meant to happen. Um, but that was really cool and I'm excited to go back on tour again. 
Thanks so much for listening and going back in time with me. Remember, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and come back tomorrow for more stories from yesteryear. It's 365 with MXM Tune. New facts every day, so don't leave too soon. I'm gonna teach you stuff, no, it won't be tough. Gonna go a year till you've had enough.